We are glad you're here with us this morning. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. So we're just we're glad that you are here joining us, whether you're here in person, whether you're online. We're just glad you're worshiping with us this morning. Just a couple of things, a couple of announcements I want to make before we get started. One, on November 15th, after, after church and after the Sunday school hour, we will have a congregational meeting here to vote on um, Josh Welsh being nominated as the missions chair. And we'll cover a few other things in that meeting as well. Um, but we'll have that, kind of, that meeting on November 15th after the Sunday school hour. So if you can join us for that, that would be great. Um, yeah, also, Fun Club looking for people to make cookies. So if you're interested in that, um, contact the church office for some more details. Um, so yeah, so we're glad you're here with us this morning, and we're looking forward to worshiping together. Well, I'd like to welcome you also to our worship service this morning. For those of you that might not know me, my name is Eric Gustafson, and my team and I are prepared to lead you into the Lord's presence in worship this morning. So I'm glad you're here to join us. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online as well. Um, let's begin our worship time by responsibly reading together uh, from Psalm 95. Come. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. The sea belongs to Him, for He made it. His hands formed the dry land, too. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. We are the people He watches over, the flock under His care. If only you would listen to His voice today. If you're able, I invite you now to stand and let's sing together.
want to say thank you to those of you who have been have faithfully, continue to be faithfully giving throughout this season for us. Um, so normally we pass an offering plate during this time. We're not doing that right now. So if you want to continue to give on your way out, there are plates in the back. You can give in. Others you can give online or um, mail a check or drop off a check at the church office. We just want to say thank you. If you're visiting with us, please know that we're not asking you to give. Um, we just want this service to be a gift to you. But for those of you who are regular attenders, we're thankful for your continued giving. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you that we were amazed that as we just sang that you you thought of us above all, that you loved us enough, you cared for us enough to not leave us with the just consequences of our sin, but that you sent Jesus to pay the penalty for those sins. We can gather here in this place that your people, people who know and love and have been redeemed by Jesus, we can praise you and we can worship you even in the midst of various kinds of trials and difficulties. We we know that you love us. We know that you care for us. We know that you have a good plan for your creation. We praise you for that. We pray for people in the church family who are going through difficult times, whether that's because of health or finances or other difficulties, God, that you would be with them, that you would be at work to reveal yourself, to pour out your grace and mercy on those people who are walking through difficult times, that you would bring them comfort, that you bring them peace. God, just for our, our nation, that as we look to an uncertain future with the election coming up and whatever that may hold, we we pray that you would give wisdom to leaders, that you would bring about your purposes in um, the election, but above all, we pray that we would remember that you are the king of the universe, that you reign over all leaders, that you are a good and perfect and righteous sovereign ruler. God, so no matter who our earthly leaders may be, that you are the king who sits on the throne of the universe. You will bring about your good purposes. I pray that we would find trust and comfort in that. God, so I pray that as we now enter into this Continue, continue this time of worship, of singing praise to you, that our heart would be just oriented toward bringing you praise, that any distractions that may be before us, that they would pass away, and that we would be amazed at what a great God you are, what a great Savior Jesus is, and we would pour out praise to you through these songs, that you'd be glorified. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll now continue worship uh, in song now, and if you are able again, please stand.
seated and let's continue with some more scripture. Uh, This is going to be a scripture rendering of John chapter 4. Give me a drink. Did you hear me? That bad, huh? What? For you, a Jew. Not for the drinks and me and for medicine. And a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. Then it's not safe for you to be alone out here? Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come with you. Shinichi, you have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with me? Long story. I'd I'd still like a drink of water if, if you can spare it. Anything but a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean, Jesus? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Would. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Wrong story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water, hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. That'd be nice. The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now not your husband. Uh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Where am I supposed to go when I need God? 
if we would have proved anything from God that I couldn't thank him even if I did anywhere God is spirit and the time is coming and is now here that it won't matter where you worship but only that you do it in spirit and truth heart and mind that that is the kind of worshipper he's looking for it won't matter where you're from what I'm telling you. Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me, I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Rami. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. It made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know. But not by the Messiah. <sighs> and you know these things because you are the Christ. Joy. Joy. 
the joy of being known. The joy of no longer needing to hide. The joy of being loved in spite, despite. Lord, every one of us who have named you Lord have experienced this joy. The day we knew that you looked into our hearts and you saw everything. There was nothing any hidden anymore. God, may we, like the Samaritan woman, be bold in our proclamation, no longer phased by the condemning stares, no longer hearing the voice of the accuser, naming off our sins one by one, no longer silenced by our shame or our guilt, but God full, full of joy in the freedom that we have received from you. Oh God, may we raise our voices in the assembly of the saints, in church here, but may our voices be raised in our home in praise, in gratitude. May our voices be heard in the marketplace, in our offices, in our schools, on the streets, when we shop, when we are taking a walk, when we are in the gym. For we are redeemed. A holy people. A holy nation. God, may we exalt you. Praising you, the Christ, the Messiah, our Savior, our friend, our God above all gods. Oh God, in the name of Jesus.
please have a seat. Before we get to the sermon this morning, Mokia and Marcy here with us, they're going to kind of share a little bit about what's some of the things going on in their life. Good morning, everyone. So we um, ask for this opportunity to come to our family because we consider you our family. Seek blessings for what we believe is a calling uh, that we have uh, received. I recently have read a book by Mark Barberton, Laberton, <laughs> who is the president of Fuller Theological uh, Seminary, and it's called Calling. And it's all in this search for what does it mean to be called. And he gives uh, this image of being called, being akin to going on exile. And he really talks about exile versus being in the promised land. And calling is getting into that mode of going into exile. And and scriptures are full of people going to exile when they get comfortable and they found this, find this place that's all awesome and God calls them because in, in exile they grow and they encounter God in ways uh, that are amazing. So in 2013 we felt like we were going into exile when we were called from Nairobi which is 70 today I'll have you know and nice <laughs> and we were called to the Northwoods um, of Wisconsin. I don't think. <laughs> but we came to this church. This was our first church. This is where we found a home. And we found great teaching. And we fell in love. I fell absolutely in love with cross-training. <laughs> because that's where we wrestled with the word. Our boys, Kiama was 14. And one guy was 12. And they found friends and friendships here at a Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. And Pastor Andrew, he really loved them. Absolutely. And the volunteers loved them. And so we found a home. One guy is still crazy about Bob Warner. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and then I, I can talk about our small group. Because this, this became true family. We have cried. We have met together for several years. You know. Um, and, and truly this is where we felt like we had found family. They are the Dehans, the Stoffers, JP and Crystal. And I won't try and pronounce their surname. Because <laughs> they don't try and pronounce mine either. <laughs> <laughs> the Nassigas, Elaine, Rose. Out scales, and I don't know whether I've forgotten anybody. That that movie, that movie clip, just terrible. Before you have to make an announcement, right? <laughs> we loved being involved in worship in the pulpit ministries, which I was given opportunity to be part of. Loved being part of the search committee <laughs> team. What a joy! Really did feel close to the promised land. As our boys, you know, left home now, we are empty nesters. And with it has come the stirrings, a turn. And I want to share a little bit about that. Both Marcy and I grew up in the Anglican church. And that is where our major transitions were. We got married 
we were baptized, we confirmed, all, all of that in, in the, um, the Anglican Church. And we have felt called to sort of go back to our roots, especially as we look ahead. And I don't know how long, how long God will have us here in the Northwoods, but when we go back home, we are committed to the Anglican Church, the Church of Our Roots. And it seems the right time after lots of prayer and wrestling, because we, we don't want to leave. We really don't. It seems to be time for that new step of exile from this promised land. We feel like it's in obedience. We need to go and grow and, and respond to the calling to serve. So we called uh, the board chair and we shared this with him and we found that he supported us. And the board, we met the board, we met with Pastor Tim and we felt really well supported in this. And our small group, we gathered them, socially distanced, campfire, and they too, very, very reluctantly, are sending us off with blessings as well. And that's what we've come here to do now, is to seek your blessings. It makes me think of uh, Jeremiah 29, which was a letter to the exiles. So this theme of exile continues. Um, it was a, a letter with instructions, a letter with promises. And I'm going to read um, a few verses from that. Uh, in verse 7, before the one that we know, verse 11 is the one we all know, right? Um, it says, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which you ha I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And moving on to verse 11, our favorite verse. I know that's true of many people, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. We are not going away and not coming back. We hope to serve alongside you. We hope to continue in our small group and many, many things that we pray and hope for. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, would you send us off with your blessings as we move to St. Mary's of the Snows in Eagle River as our home church? Let's do that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we praise you for the work you have been doing and will continue to do through Mahia and Marcy and just their their faithfulness to you and to be obedient to what you have called them to. We praise you for their years of service to this church and in leading worship and in being involved in other capacities and just yeah, the way you've worked through them. We do pray now as they prepare for this transition that you would be with them. We thank you that we praise you that your your universal church is um, not confined to one geographical area, whether you work through various churches in various areas to bring about your good purposes and bring glory to your name. And so, um, you pray for the for them as they make this transition, as they prepare to serve in another manifestation of your church in a different area. Just that you would be with them, that you would. Bring glory to your name through the work you continue to do through Mahia and Marcy. I just pray that they would 
feel blessed and encouraged that they leave here and go into this new stage of their lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So after the service, downstairs in my fellowship hall, we'll have coffee and we'll also have uh, kind of dessert to kind of celebrate Mahia and Marcy and their time here. So I invite you to be a part of that. And then at 12.30, we'll gather, or 11.30, 10.30, We'll gather back here uh, for, <laughs> uh, for, for cross-training. And so, yeah, so after the service, I invite you to go downstairs, grab coffee, grab a dessert, Wish Mohia and Marcy well, and then 10.30 we gather back here um, to kind of discuss more of the sermon as well, and while the children are in Sunday school. So before, before I jump into the sermon this week, I want to give you a bit of a roadmap for kind of what lies ahead for us in terms of sermons. So starting next week, we're going to start a sermon series through the book of Luke. Now, if you know anything about the book of Luke, like you know that it's long. It's 24 chapters. Like some of those chapters are long chapters. And so, like I do plan to go all the way through the entire book. And like as I have it broken down right now, that's like 80 sermons. Which, like, I don't know if it, like, what it sounds like to you. Like to me, that sounds kind of daunting. Like if I were you in the congregation, I'd be like, that's going to get old and repetitive. And so I kind of felt a little bit of that too, but I think there are two things that kind of help mitigate against that. Like one, like Luke is a very diverse book. Right? Like if it was just all one letter, like people who preach through Romans for two or three years, like that's a lot of the same thing over and over again. Right? But Luke's a very diverse book. Right? There's teaching, there's miracles, there's confrontations, there's parables, like there's a lot of things going on. So there's enough variety in the book itself, I think, to help us kind of avoid some of that monotony of the same thing over and over again. And second, the book of Luke has a number of kind of natural sections with natural breaking points, right? So my plan is to do like nine to 12 weeks, do one series, and then take a break for four to six weeks, and then do another nine to 12 weeks in Luke, take a break for four to six weeks, and kind of have a cycle like that. And so it'll end up being like eight kind of separate series, each nine to 12 weeks long to get us through the book of Luke with a four to six break in between to kind of give us a little bit of variety. So that's the plan. That takes us through like the next two years. So we should be good for a while now. But that being said, like I know it feels a little daunting, but I'm also like really excited to go through the book of Luke with you. Like, like, there's nothing more important for us as a church to be united around than, like, the question of who is Jesus? And, like, what did he do and why does it matter? And so it's my hope that we'll come out of the time in Luke, that two-year stretch, like, just united around this great picture of who Jesus is and what, a, and what he did for us. And so I hope, like, you'll join us next week, whether in person or online, as we kind of get that series underway. But my goal for the sermon today is to kind of bridge the gap, as it were, from where we've been in our sermon series to the book of Luke. So a couple of weeks ago, we finished up a series going through the book of Habakkuk. And in that book, Habakkuk prophesied that they got going to judge the people of Judah by sending them into exile in Babylon. And then we had a sermon 
from Jeremiah 29, where like Jeremiah prophesied that the exile is going to be 70 years long. And he tells the people how to live in exile. But at the end of 70 years, the people are sent back to Jerusalem. That's where we pick up the story today. So today I want to kind of cover the rest of Judah's story, from the time of their exile through the start of the New Testament. So in order to kind of bridge that gap, in order to kind of get us from exile to the New Testament, I think this sermon is going to be a little more detailed, a little more in the weeds, have a little more background than I typically try to bring to a sermon. So for some of you who are into that sort of thing, that'll be great. Some of you might be a little daunting, but like my hope is that like by preaching this sermon, the next week when we get into Luke, like we'll have a, a good sense of the kind of religious climate that the Jewish people were existing in when Jesus walked onto the stage. And so to do that, we're going to look at Second Chronicles chapter 36. And we're going to look at verses 22 and 23. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. And as you turn there, like if you have a Bible, you turn there, you'll notice like Second Chronicles pretty much smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament. Right? So in my Bible here, like this whole thing, the Old Testament, is 1,200 pages long. And Second Chronicles, the verses today are on page 545. Right? So pretty much right in the middle. And if you turn to the left a little bit, you'll see that like, the, book, the Chronicles are preceded by the books of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. And if you like know anything about those books, you know that 1st and 2nd Chronicles repeats a lot of what's in 1st and 2nd Kings. So like, I don't know if you ever like, try to do like a Bible in the year plan or like, just read through the whole Old Testament. And, like, you, you come to Chronicles and you're like, I just read this stuff. Like, it's all the same stuff. Like, what is the point? Like, what is going on? Like, why? And so like, maybe you're tempted to just like, kind of, oh, I can skim and kind of catch up. And get ahead of my Bible reading a little bit. I don't have to read this real carefully. Right, and because of that, right, the book of Chronicles sometimes doesn't get the attention that I think it might deserve. But before we jump into the, our passage this morning, there's three things I want you to just know about the book of Chronicles that will help us when we get into the passage. The three things, two of them have to do with the location of the book, and one of them has to do with the content of the book. Let's start with the content. So I said, there's, like, there's a lot of overlap between the books of Samuel, the books of Kings, and the books of Chronicles. There's also a few key differences. And notably, the, book, the books of Chronicles treat the reigns of David and Solomon in their time as king differently than, than Samuel does. And it does that by skipping a lot of the bad stuff that David and Solomon do. Right? So like all that time that David spends... like running through the wilderness, hiding from Saul, looking kind of scared, like, doesn't get mentioned in Chronicles. Like, that thing about, you know, minor detail, David, like, committed adultery, and, like, then had the guys, that she was husband killed. Like, Chronicles, like, doesn't say a word about it. At the time, Absalom, like, David's own son, like, plans a coup and forces David to flee Jerusalem, like, doesn't get mentioned in Chronicles. The fact that Solomon married foreign wives and turned to their gods like, doesn't get mentioned. Like, Chronicles treats the reigns of David and Solomon like, in the time building the temple as like this idyllic time in the history of Israel. 
And it's like, please hear me. Like, the author of Chronicles is not skipping those things because he's just kind of hoping to deceive his audience into not knowing about those. Right? They were like perfectly aware of all the bad things David and Solomon did. And so he didn't do it just to deceive the people. But anytime you're going to write like, a big, extensive history, like, you have to make editorial decisions about what to include and what not to include based on like, the message you're trying to communicate. That's what the author of Chronicles does here. Again, he's, we'll see in a little bit. Like, he has good reason for highlighting all the good stuff that David and Solomon do. Like, and then the two other things that's important to know about Chronicles is it has to do with its location. Like, in particular, its location relative to other Old Testament books. Right? So as we said, in our modern English Bibles, the Chronicles is right in the middle of the Old Testament, and it's right next to Samuel and Kings. Right? But if you have like, a traditional Hebrew Bible, right? which who doesn't? Right? If, you, if you have one, like, the, like, these books are ordered the way they would have been like, at the time of Jesus. And then so... If you look in the Hebrew Bible, like First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, they're located right here, about a third of the way through the Old Testament. Now, if you're looking carefully, you'd be like, well, "That's like two thirds of the way through." But like Hebrew is written right to left, so that's actually one third of the way over here. It goes this way, right. so it's, it's weird. And then, so Samuel, Kings, they're here, third of the way through. Chronicles, which in our Bible comes right after Samuel and Kings, and the Hebrew Bible is found right here. It's like the last book. Like a whole other section of the Bible. Like the Hebrew Bible is broken into three chunks, three sections. Chronicles is in a totally separate section of the Hebrew Bible. And in fact, it gets the last book. And like the words we're going to read today are the very last words of the Hebrew Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures. Right? Now that brings us to the third thing you need to know. Right? So the second thing is, it's the very last book. third thing is that it comes after Ezra and Nehemiah. Right? Which I know I just told you, it's the last book, so duh. Right? It comes after Ezra and Nehemiah. Right? But it's important to know that it's after Ezra and Nehemiah because like, Ezra and Nehemiah pick up the story where Chronicles leaves off. Like, Chronicles ends with Jeremiah's prophecy of a seven-year prophecy of a seven-year exile being fulfilled, and the people of Judah being told they can return. Then Ezra and Nehemiah pick up that story by telling about what the people did after they returned from exile. So the, the events of Ezra and Nehemiah take place after the events of Chronicles, yet they get placed before Chronicles in the Jewish Scriptures. Like furthermore, like we see evidence that the book of Chronicles was written, like the author writes Chronicles after the events of the return from exile, after the events of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the author knew all about the events of Ezra and Nehemiah. He knew about all the things that had happened when they returned from the exile. And he chooses not to include any of those details. So the question we have to ask then is, Why? Why did the author of Chronicles not write about the bad things David and Solomon did? Why did the Jewish people make Chronicles the last book of their scriptures? And why did the author of Chronicles not mention what happened after the return to exile 
even though he knew about those events? And like the answer to all those questions is that like the end of the book of Chronicles that we're going to look at today is communicating a very specific message. And that message is that even though the people have returned to the land, the story is incomplete. Even though the people have come back to the land, returned from exile in one sense, they're still in a different kind of exile and are waiting for things to be resolved. All right, so with all that background in our heads, let's read the passage. It says this, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So if you have your Bible open to that passage, you turn like the very next page and look at Ezra chapter 1. The very first verses in Ezra say this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that the word of the Lord by, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourn be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offering from the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So now if you compare those two passages, like the very first part should sound identical, right? They're practically the same. But like, it's interesting that the decree of Cyrus in the book of Ezra just kind of keeps going on. It doesn't stop where Chronicles stops. And in fact, if you look closely, compare them, like Cyrus' decree in Chronicles stops in the middle of a sentence. Like his last words are, let him go up. Now in English, like that's an acceptable, complete sentence. But in Hebrew, like the way that sentence is written, it's clear that it's an incomplete sentence. And we get confirmation of that by comparing it with Cyrus' decree in Ezra. The decree in Ezra says, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up. That's where Chronicles stops. But Ezra says, let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. Right? So what that means is that like the Hebrew Scriptures, the very last verse in the Hebrew Scriptures, ends with a dot, dot, dot. The Hebrew Scriptures end in the middle of a sentence. Like, I don't know how you feel about like, cliffhanger endings for books or movies. Like, I hate them. Like, if, I pick up, like, if I pick up a book say 250 pages, like I want to know at the end of 250 pages, I'm going to have some kind of resolution. Like I want to know what I'm committing to when I pick up that book. Like I don't want to get to the end of the book and find out, oh, actually you have to read two more 300-page books to find out what actually happens here. Like, I don't want that. Like, if there's one series I started reading, it's a trilogy. The book one 
came out in 2007. Book two came out in 2011. Like, I read both of those books in like 2013 or so. Like, book two ends with a cliffhanger. And, like book three still hasn't been released. Like nine years after he published book two, like still waiting for book three. Like it's utterly maddening. Like I have no idea even what happened in book two now. So if book three ever does come out, I have to go like go reread those to know what's going on. So that's frustrating, waiting nine years for a sequel. But that's nothing compared to Chronicles. Like, Chronicles ends on a cliffhanger, ends on a dot, dot, dot. Like, our best guess is that it was written around, like, 400 B.C. 400 years before Jesus comes on the scene. 400 years before the next chapter is written. And it ends in the middle of a sentence. And it does that to drive home a point. That the story is incomplete. Just because the people have returned from exile like, does not mean that the story is finished. What we see from looking at the Old Testament as a whole is that there are kind of three ways that the story of God's people is incomplete based on what we see in Chronicles. It's the three ways the story of God's people is incomplete. And the first way the story is incomplete is that there's an incomplete king. Or incomplete kingship. Right? As I mentioned, like First Chronicles makes a big deal about David's time as king. Like, it removes all the bad stuff he did, and it portrays life in Israel under his reign in almost like idyllic terms. Right? And then in First Chronicles 17, God makes David this very important promise. He tells David, "When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. His throne shall be established forever. So God promises David that when the story is complete and everything is resolved, one of David's offspring will reign as king over God's people. But here, at the end of Chronicles, it's Cyrus, king of Persia, who decrees that the Jewish people can return to Jerusalem. So even though they're allowed to return, they're still under Persian authority. And in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the wall. We see the work constantly starting and stopping as they wait for permission from the king in Persia to carry on with the work. So at this point, like, even though people have returned to the land, like, like they're still waiting for the day when, God's, when David's offspring will once again be their king. So the return from exile is incomplete in that way. The second sign that the exile is incomplete is that there's an incomplete temple. And God promised to David, we just read, God also said that David's son would build a house for God. And that's fulfilled when Solomon builds God this extravagant temple in Jerusalem. In 2 Chronicles 7, we read about how when the temple was complete, like the people of Israel had this huge dedication service. They sacrificed 22,000 head of cattle, 120,000 sheep and goats. And as part of this service, like the prophet Samuel comes and he prays, and after he prays, this happens. Because when, when Solomon finished praying, 
fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, His love endure forever. Like in that scene, like the glory of the Lord comes and He fills the temple. And the temple becomes the place where God specially dwells with His people. But then in Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel has this image, this vision, where he sees, like it's right before the Babylonians come, and he sees the glory of God leave the temple. And so now we fast forward to Ezra. The people have returned from the land, like their first order of business. So we need to rebuild this temple so that God can meet with us. So they toil, and they work to build a new temple, and they finally finish. And they have a dedication service, just like they did for the original temple. But this time, instead of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep, they offer 100 bulls, 400 lambs. And like, there's no indication then in that account that, that the glory of God ever comes and fills that temple in the same way it did Solomon's temple. And in fact, like the people of the old-timers who had seen the old temple, after the foundation is laid for the new temple, like these old-timers weep over the seeing the new temple. And they weep because like, the new temple is so pitifully small compared to Solomon's temple. And they, they realize that it, this could not be what God had planned for them. So we could add to that the fact that like, we never see God's glory return. Like, God's glory never comes and fills the temple the way it did in Solomon's time. And it's clear that like, even with this temple, like, the return from exile is again incomplete. If there's an incomplete kingship, there's an incomplete, incomplete temple, because God's glory didn't return. And finally, there's, a, there's an incomplete remedy for sin. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, if the people are first coming back from exile, like there's this hope that the sins of the former generation have been atoned for, they've been dealt with, and now they have the opportunity to start fresh as God's people. And there's this hope that this time, they're going to get it right. Like this time, they're not going to blow it with their sin. So what happens? Like in Ezra chapter 9, like we see that the people who have returned to the land are intermarrying with other nations and turning away from God. Right? People spend 70 years in exile for their sin. Like you would think that they'd be committed to living holy lives, at least for a while. It takes them nine chapters to fall into their old sinful ways. That's like New Year's resolution, like January, January 1st, like this year I'm going to eat right, I'm going to do the right things, and then like January 4th you're sitting on the couch eating a tub of ice cream. Like, it's like nine chapters to blow it. Like, clearly, the exile didn't take care of the people's sin problem. Like, and because of that, it's clear again that the story is incomplete. So the book of Chronicles and the entire Hebrew Old Testament ends with God's people still needing three things. They need a king from David's line. They need a temple or a place where God is present with his people. And they need a way for their sin problem to be dealt with. 
And what we'll see as we work our way through Luke is that like Jesus is the answer to all of those needs. Like Luke is going to give us Jesus' genealogy. He can, he, does, he can be sure to point out that Jesus comes from the line of David. And when Jesus is crucified, Luke's going to make sure to tell us that the sign above his head reads, this is the king of the Jews. Now, that was done in mockery, but it was true. In Jesus, we see that the, the way that God dwelled with his people have moved from the temple to Jesus. Like we just saw the woman at the well. Right? That Eventually, it's not going to matter what mountain you worship on. Like The temple doesn't matter anymore because the place God is present with his people is no longer at the temple, but in Jesus. In chapter 1 of John, tells us that the Word, that is Jesus, took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that word for made his dwelling actually means tabernacle. Like the Word, Jesus, took on flesh and tabernacled among us. And the tabernacle was like the precursor to the temple at the place where God dwelt with his people. And that verse goes on to say, We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory that filled the first temple and caused people to fall on their faces. The glory that Ezekiel saw leave the temple. The glory that never returned to the rebuilt temple. It's all seen in Jesus. So Jesus is the king from David's line. Jesus is the temple. He is the place where God dwelled with his people. And finally, Jesus is the ultimate remedy for sin. Throughout the Old Testament, like, we see that people can live obedient lives for like, a little while. They can be stirred up to make rousing commitments to live holy lives. But those things always fall apart quickly. I get a clear we need a better remedy for sin than our own self-effort. And thankfully, God provides that for us in Jesus. Jesus comes, and he does what we could never do. He lives a perfect life, and then dies on the cross to finally, ultimately, provide the remedy for our sin. So that by believing in him, God treats us as if we lived the perfect life Jesus lived. So the exiles who returned from Babylon, like, they lived in this weird in-between state. They had returned to the land, but they were still in a kind of exile. Like, we live in a, a similar state. Right? Like, one commentator said this about Chronicles. This is representative of the human condition. Home, and yet not home, until the kingdom of God comes. Like, so for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, like, we have found our home in him. And yet, we still struggle with our own personal sin. We still see the effect of living in a fallen and broken world everywhere we turn. We are home in Jesus, but the story is still incomplete. But thankfully, this time, God didn't leave us with another cliffhanger. He tells us how this story ends, even though we're still living in the middle of it. One day, Jesus will return, and all his people will gather around his throne, 
where he reigns as the king of the universe from the line of David. Like as he reigns, he will be present with his people. And when he returns, he will finally, ultimately, defeat all sin. There will be no more pain or sickness or death. Like when Jesus returns, we will be fully returned from exile, and the story will be complete. As we, as we await that day, my hope is that we will not lose heart. We will not give in to despair over the state of the world. That we will cling to the promise that God has already written the end of the story. And that for all those who trust in Jesus, that end is glorious. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you that you have already worked out the end of the story, that you already have good and perfect plans for bringing this universe to completion. As we live now in the middle of that story, wrestling with sin, wrestling with a fallen and broken world, We pray that we would rest in having found our home in Jesus. That we would work in his name to bring about redemption and good in this world. That ultimately we would look towards the future, to your coming, to that glorious day when you will set all things right. God, help us to live in light of that glorious coming day, trusting that you have good plans for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go today, I pray that you would go feeling at home in your relationship with Jesus, not looking forward to the day when God will bring all of us home together. Go in peace. You're dismissed.